It's 1208. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. No Facebook Live today. A couple technical problems. Hopefully we'll be able to do that again tomorrow. Let us get right into the program. Now, by, by way of background, I, I told you a couple of weeks ago, I, I came back from our, our river cruise, and it was on the Danube. And we started in, in Hungary, um, actually Budapest, and then worked our way through Austria, ended up back in the extreme uh, western portions of uh, eastern portions of Germany. So wonderful, wonderful trip, interesting history. But a lot of the river cruise centered on going through Austria. And people ask me, what was the most like memorable part of the trip? We were in Vienna, we were in Budapest, we saw these in- incredible buildings and palaces and courthouses. But but to me, and I, I've told this story on the radio before, the the most, and maybe it's because I'm a history nerd and I say that, that proudly, the, the most troubling and as I think back on the trip, my, my biggest memory comes in this little town called Linz, which is sort of one of the unaf- – it's like the third large – I said little town. I guess it's the third largest city in, in Austria. But our, our boat docks in, in Linz, and that's where if you want to go down um, to uh, – if you want to go down to Salzburg and take like the Sound of Music tour, they, they bus you down there. So we went on that trip. But I, I got a chance to spend a little bit of time in Linz, and I'm in the town square in Linz. And the guide says, well, we're not proud about this part of our history. But if you look over there, and it's this second floor balcony over what at the time was the town hall. But it still opens up onto this this this, this giant you know town square area. The guide says in March of 1938, that's where Adolf Hitler stood when he announced the annexation of, of Austria. And the guide also says we're not proud of this, but we had – Somewhere between fifty to eighty thousand people who were standing there cheering him. Now, one of the the big issues in history is whether Austria was sort of taken over or whether they went willingly to become part of the, the German Reich. But I and, and that's as I've been telling people I, as I've since I've been back. Well, what, what do you remember most? I said it's this balcony. It's this second floor balcony. And in, like I say, May or March, March of 1938, you have Adolf Hitler standing on this and you have 50 to 80,000 people just cheering him on. And, and how could people have not seen what a monster that this guy was going to be? It's, it, it's this incredible historical thing and they haven't changed the balcony. It's right there where it was. And you can just almost picture how it must have been. And you wonder, you know, how could people go along and do something like this? And it's just, I, it, it continues to frankly haunt me you know, since since I saw it uh, several weeks ago, which brings me to the story that is now getting international attention. Last spring, the class of 2019 at Baraboo High School has a junior prom. The prom is off campus. But, you know, all the guys, and there's an enormous number of guys, they're all dressed up in tuxedos and things like that. Now, I don't know where they were when this photo was taken, but they all pose on the steps of uh, of a building. And if you want to see the photo, you can text the word Baraboo, B-A-R-A-B-O-O, to 414-799-1620. But th- this picture is now all over. And th- the kids are all standing there, and they are making what appears to be, um, again, the extended right hand. It looks like the the Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer salute. And and they're doing this. All their hands are extended. Now, this picture was taken months ago, and there appears to be at least some question as to why it was taken. Did the official photographer for the event 
direct them to do it? What exactly happened? And, and nobody knows for sure. But you've got all the kids that, you know, have, have their hands extended as in that, that particular salute. This picture has been circulating for, for months. And apparently it was posted from the beginning on the website of the guy that was the official photographer for the group. So, I mean, I assume this thing has been circulating for quite a while. Like I say, this was taken in the spring at the junior prom. And now here we are. It, it's, you know, we're pushing mid-November. So it's been around for presumably five, six months. But somebody notices it a couple days ago and says, what's going on here? And then, of course, it, it goes viral. So now you have the, the huge controversy. The school district has issued a statement. Let me see. Let me get the uh, most recent statement. Um, dot, 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 dot. Here's the school district, small print. Early this morning, a, a photo that was taken last spring of some Baraboo School District students who appear to be making extremely inappropriate gestures began circulating on social media. The district has confirmed at this time that the photo was not taken on school property or at a school-sponsored event. I don't know about that last part because all everything, everything that that they're talking about on the internet suggests that this this was in advance of a junior prom. But the district says it's not at a school-sponsored event. I don't know why you have all if it's not a school-sponsored event. I don't know why you have all the kids dressed up in tuxedos. It looks like a pre-prom type of photo. The school district is investigating the situation, is working with parents, staff, and local authorities. If the gesture is what it appears to be, the district will pursue any and all available and appropriate actions, including legal, to address this issue. With that, we want to be very clear. The Baraboo School District is a hate-free environment where all people, regardless of race, color, religion, creed, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, national origin, or ancestry are respected and celebrated. All right, and that's signed by Dr. Lori Muller, Miller, the superintendent of schools. All right, so that's what the school district has to say. All right, if this is what it seems to be, which is the, the, the gesture, this has been around for several months. So here is my question to you. What should the school district do? I mean, as I'm reading all the stuff on social media, some people are saying, well, all these kids should be expelled. Well, my guess is if that happens, you're expelling the entire you know, senior class. Oh, people should look at prosecution. Well, I don't know what the prosecution of, of this would be, but it happened months ago. It is only now coming to attention, although, again, it hasn't been a secret. So my question is this, and this is where I want to start our conversation off with, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It is difficult to imagine a, a more inappropriate inappropriate gesture and the fact that all these kids decided to pose for this photograph doing this. Who knows who encouraged them to do it, but the fact that all these kids did is almost mind-boggling. But having said that, Having said that, it's months ago. What do you do, if anything, to the kids who posed for this? Do you discipline them? Do you say, hey, all right, you know, this is what happened six months ago. Everybody in this photograph, we're going to suspend you. We're going to expel you. What do you do? Do you discipline them? The school says this was not on school property. They say it wasn't a school-sponsored event. Again, I don't, I, I don't. I don't know. My understanding is it's a junior prom, but I could be wrong in that regard. What do you do? 414-799-1620. If anything, we discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 
1219, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, this is now an international story. Uh, you have a bunch of kids from Baraboo. Presumably this was last spring at their junior prom. They are photographed making what appears to be the Heil Hitler salute. We're talking about a lot of kids. Um, young boys, I, I, I'm told that this is the junior class. Everybody's dressed up for prom. The photo, interestingly enough, has, has been around for, for months. Somebody now saw it. It's gone viral. Now the school district says we're investigating it. We're bringing in the police, et cetera, et cetera. My question to you is, what should happen? Rosie in Illinois. Rosie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good morning. I guess this afternoon now, after 12, yes. <laughs> um, I, uh, go Pack. I'm from Milwaukee originally. Um, as a former school teacher, I think that it's time that people hold their kids accountable. If the photographer was paid for, to, um, he's official, and he, the school paid the contract for him to take the pictures, then the school needs to deal with the photographer directly. Right. If it was, you know, it could have been a parent, and I hope it wasn't a parent, it could have been a kid, it could have been a friend, you never know, because people have all kinds of cameras. But I'm tired of people always blaming the school. You've got to hold the kids accountable, and the parent, if you had a child in that age group, and they might have gone to that affair, I would definitely check out and see if my kid is in that picture and talk to my kid. What, what, do, you, do you think the school should do anything as far as disciplining the kids? No. I really don't, because it wasn't. If it was not on school property, and it's very clear that it was not, it was not on school property. I haven't seen it. Then, then no, I really don't. I think it's time that people hold kids to be accountable and stop blaming the schools all the time. Teachers and uh, teachers get it from all the administrators, and administrators get it from all the lawmakers and stuff like that. Somebody has to go back to the parents and talk to the parents and talk to the kids. If you're a junior in high school, you're old enough to drive. They're old enough to know better than to stand in that photograph. Thanks I'm for the call. No, no, thanks. I well, I, I guess, and I, I, by the way, I, I, I agree with you um, that that this is this is the kids. Now, I don't know some of the reports, and again, you, you take everything you hear on social media with with a grain of salt. Some people are suggesting that this was a posed thing. It was the photographer that suggested. Of course, if I'm if I'm in this group, I'm like, you want me to do what? Are you nuts? But but regardless. I mean, I guess the question is, at this point in time, six months later, does the school district, do, do they impose discipline, and, and what should that discipline be? And candidly, I'll be honest with you, I don't understand why the police are involved in this. And I, this, what I'm about to say is in no way, shape, or form an endorsement of this. I mean, this is just, it is incredibly stupid. It shows the historical ignorance that apparently permeates the now senior class at, at Baraboo High School. But does that make it? Does it make it a police matter? And my answer is I don't know what crimes have been committed here in in just posing for that photograph, but it is just an incredible exercise in, in stupidity. And if I was every one of these kids' parents, I would, in fact, be embarrassed. David, downtown. David, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Um, I think really what should happen is that the schools want to get involved. I think it's their place to get involved. Have them watch Schindler's List. Have them, have them watch the documentary on the Holocaust. Have them read a book about the Holocaust. Do a National Geographic search on the Holocaust. Show them images of what the Holocaust is. Kids are so far removed from history. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not trying to... It's like when I was a kid playing Cowboys and Indians. This is something that happened 80, 90 years ago. You know, I mean, you're going on, you're going on 80 years ago. Mm-hmm. These events were taking place. So... From a historical perspective, these kids have no ideas of the horrors, the atrocities that were committed against man. So you think it's a teachable moment more than anything else? 
Well, yeah, I mean, have right have the have the Holocaust Museum from Washington D.C. Uh, send some films to them, uh, DVDs, or whatever, just to show them actually what the Holocaust is. I mean, not to be graphic, but if I see, you know, three hundred feet of human remains and bones and suitcases yeah. of people and children who were killed, I don't think they know. Yeah. And so it's like you watch Hogan's Heroes, they have no idea what's going on with the world. Right. Show well, them I, what I, the Holocaust was about. I mean, I do, th- I mean, thanks. I, I do, the first thing you mentioned, one of the first things you mentioned is what a couple of our texters have mentioned. If nothing else, I, Baraboo High School should be taking time out and every one of those students, um, not just the ones in the picture, but maybe everyone in all those classes, it, it should be mandatory to sit and watch Schindler's List, for example, just as a just as a starting point to get an idea of, of what exactly was going on. Now, I have a text here. We do a hand gesture like that every Sunday in church as a blessing symbol. Just because they're holding their hands like that doesn't mean it's a Nazi salute. Now, I, I think that's. With all due respect, I think that's being incredibly naive. I don't think that the kids were all doing that gesture as a blessing. I, I think this was uh, an ill-considered joke or or whatever. If kids want to step forward and say, well, that's, this was just like we, we were blessing everybody, but that's I think that's an incredibly naive thing. I think this is what it is. Having said that, I don't think six months later, this is a situation where the school can come back and start expelling kids or things like that. But I would tell you, it, it is it is an ongoing problem for these kids because they're going to be filling out college applications. And now this is another one of these examples of how when you do stupid things and it ends up on the Internet, you've got all these kids that are now in this photograph making, or at least the vast majority of them, are making gestures that many are going to interpret being exactly what I interpret them being. 414-799-1620. Chuck in Madison. Chuck, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing today? Real well, thank you. Should the school do something to these kids? I don't think uh, an expel or a suspension is in order, but I I agree with the last uh, caller. I thought, let's say there was a senior trip or something, that that would have to be to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., and at the parents' expense, they have to write a report in order to graduate or, or certainly yeah. attend a prom or something like that. But I, I like the idea of watching Schindler's List, or, uh, read some books, Diary of Van Frank, and then writing a report of what they learned. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, something like that. I mean, I, as far as discipline, I, I think the school is very limited as to what it it can do, especially if this is off the school grounds. Now, again, I don't understand where they say it's not a school-sanctioned event because all the reports seem to suggest that this is the junior prom, and I would imagine, I would think that the junior prom would be a school-sanctioned event. But maybe, maybe I'm wrong that it wasn't at the junior prom. Maybe these reports are correct. But I, I don't see anything that, that's here criminally, and I think if the school were to try to discipline these kids, they, they'd be – looking at a lawsuit that they would probably end up losing, which isn't to say that it is not exactly a a teachable moment. And I do think it's fair for the school district to conduct an investigation as to how did this picture get taken? I mean, who was it that came up with the idea that let's have everybody stand on the steps and and let's have everybody make this particular gesture? I mean, who, who thought that this was going to be a good idea? Obviously, this was a posed photograph. And when it's a posed photograph, you know, somebody is saying, "Okay, this is what we want the photograph to be. So I think it's fair to ask that particular question. But as far as disciplining the kids, I, I, I don't 
I, I don't think you can do it. I think you'd be on real shaky legal ground if you ended up doing it, which isn't an endorsement. It is a huge embarrassment, and it does show perhaps this historical ignorance that needs to be addressed and Maybe there's all sorts of ways you can address it. I would start with showing Schindler's List, but there's probably all sorts of other ways that you could accomplish it as well. Bottom line is Baraboo is in the national and international news and not in a very good way. It's 1228, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1238, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When I was a freshman in high school back in the day, I there there was everybody had to take a foreign language, as I recall. And the foreign language that I wanted to take was Russian. They had offered Russian to the previous, you know, groups of, of incoming students. And, and I, I thought, don't ask me why I thought Russian would be cool. It's just that everybody takes French and, you know, German and, you know, Spanish. And I thought it'd be cool to learn Russian. So I signed up for that. Well, they did away with the, the class. They, they, they ended up saying not enough freshmen signed up for Russian. And the, what their philosophy was, they said, look, we're... Unless we have like a core nucleus, we're, we're not going to allow incoming classes to start unless we think that there's going to be enough people that'll take it to make it worth it for offering it for, for four years. So they, they, they said we're, we're scaling back. We're not offering Russian. Not enough people are are taking it. So then for reasons, well, I, I, I took Latin. I, I took I ended up taking Latin and I enjoyed it. But. But the the number of I think ultimately they ended up doing away with the Latin class as well. Now since I started it, there were enough people to get through. But I was with the I was with pretty much the same class of people for four years as, as we went through Latin. But ultimately, I think they ended up doing away with Latin because not enough people were taking it. It's a simple situation of supply and demand. It's not like it's not worthwhile to teach Latin. But if you're in a public school and there's not that many people that want to take Latin, well, okay, you get to a point where it just doesn't make economic sense to offer it. it it's just the way it works, which brings me to the alma mater of my producer, Gru, University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Now, Gru, I actually went on their Wikipedia page today, and it listed all the most memorable graduates from UW-Stevens Point, and you are not on that list yet. But I, but I, but I say yet. You've only been out of Stevens Point for a couple of years, so... You get someday. I have no doubt that someday that you will, in fact, be on that because there's not really that many famous people that came out of UW Stevens Point. But you, I have no doubt that you are going to be on it. But you will remember last year there was this huge controversy when Stevens Point announced that they were going to be phasing out various what they would call low demand humanity majors because. What they found was, I mean, Stevens Point right now has a nearly $8 million structural deficit. In other words, they're spending a lot more money than they are getting in. And so what they were doing is they're looking at this saying, okay, well, let's let's look at some of the programs that we are offering that might be extremely worthwhile, but that nobody's taking. And, and so if we've got these programs that nobody's taking, you know, we're paying professors, the classes aren't filling, do we have to cut them back? And, of course, after this happened, you had all these students that protested. You had faculty that was outraged. You had the national media that said, oh, this is the typical Scott Walker stuff. Stevens Point, you know, killing the humanities. All right. So they backed off a little bit. Well, well, now they are back. Now, here's here's the deal. The chancellor at Stevens Point um, is apparently saying, look, here, here's what we want to do. We 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 can't continue to offer degrees and programs in these areas where kids aren't taking them. 
And so rather than going after 13 low-demand humanities, what they've done is, is they've chosen the ones that are the least demand. And they're, they're looking at actually dropping the programs. What are those majors? French, German, geology, geography, history, and an art degree program. And so people are now, they're, they're starting to scream. Well, what do you mean? You, what do you mean you're going to drop the history program? Well, I mean, here's the numbers. UW Stevens Point has about a little over 7,700 students. Okay, 7,700 students. Um, the number of kids who choose history as a major in 2013, there were 146. Last year, there were 76. Right, it's dropped down to seventy-six out of seven thousand seven hundred are choosing history as a major, and so I think the university, the university is looking at this and saying there's just not enough demand at Stevens Point University, University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, for this particular major. And by phasing out these various programs, and they're not going to do it overnight, but they're going to say that everybody who's enrolled in this major, we're going to guarantee that we're going to continue it so you can proceed and get your degree over the next couple years, but we're we're not going to offer it to new students. So the people that are there now that signed up to be a history major, you're still going to be able to get your history degree. You're still going to be able to get your French degree or your degree in, in German but moving forward, they're not going to take anybody in, and that means that they're going to be able to save some money. They're going to be able to cut some professors and, again, streamline it. And one of the things that, that they say is that what we want to do is we want to start looking looking at this university in general, and we want to start trying to focus what we are teaching and translate this into things that might actually help people in their careers – um, and, and things that people are, are taking. And believe me, this isn't a knock on, on being a history major. My late wife was a history major. So, I mean, I appreciate there's a value. And nobody is talking about eliminating history majors from the entire UW system. But Stephen's point is simply saying we don't have enough kids that are taking these programs to make it worthwhile to do it. It's just not cost effective. If you've got a university of 7,700 kids and you've only got 76 that are history majors, it doesn't make any sense. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I, I have nothing against these various liberal arts majors. I, I don't. I, I, you know, French, German, th- these are all history, geography, geology. They are all worthwhile areas of study. But if the reality is that there's not enough kids taking them, it doesn't seem to me that you can continue to offer them. Just like back in the day, I wanted to take Russian, but there weren't enough kids that signed up to take Russian, so they couldn't offer the program. All right, is Stevens Point wrong in scaling this back? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I'm sure... There's now going to be a whole new wave of protests. How can you get rid of the history department? Well, they're just, it's supply and demand, and nobody is demanding this particular major. 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. We continue the conversation. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 1249, Jeff Wagner. I, I grew up, Eric, reading Marvel comics. That's how I yeah, learned to too. read. And, and I was of that age. I... 
I, I am one of those many people who say, my God, we didn't know that these 10 and 12 cent comic books were going to be valuable. I remember X, I had X-Men 1. Mm-hmm. I had this amazing Spider-Man 1. I had the Fantastic Four from the beginning. I, you know, I can remember on Fridays, my, my parents would take me down to this little drugstore and stuff and you'd buy all these comic books yeah. and we'd, we'd read them and we thought they were just disposable. You didn't think they'd be incredibly valuable, but I, 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 so, I mean, I, I grew up with the whole Marvel universe from the beginning, but it taught me how to read. And you know, so you started reading the comic books, and I remember I'd bug my father saying, I don't, what's this word, or what's that word, or sure, whatever. Sure. And, and then, you know, that, that's the gift of reading. And so I'm, I'm never embarrassed by that. You started reading comic books, and then it grew to reading all sorts of other things. Well, not even that, too. It, it taught a lot of people how to draw and how to, like, actually use their imagination. I mean, it really, the guy is immortal. He's an icon. There, yeah, he and Jack Kirby, who yep. created a number of those. There's, there's, there's still a word. That, okay, Spider-Man. The Spider-Man, I think it was num- issue number two. Okay, the villain. It, it's a word to this day I cannot pronounce. It, the word chameleon. That was the villain. It was chameleon. But chameleon is spelled like Shyamalan. C-H-A. <laughs> and I remember I couldn't get it. I couldn't get that the H was silent. Mm-hmm. To this day, when I see the word chameleon in print, I think back to the villain. I think it was Spider-Man number two. Maybe it was one, whatever. No, it was Spider-Man number two, because the vulture was the villain in Spider-Man yeah, number one. Good, but um, yeah, useless trivia. Um, but but yeah, it was chameleon. And I'm thinking, I, I don't get it. And they'd say, no, that's how you pronounce it. It's chameleon. But there's an H in there. So, But anyway, Stanley, rest in peace. Uh, 414-799-1620. What we were talking about right before the break is UW Stevens Point has announced that they are eliminating six humanities majors. Um, no more French, no more German, no more geography, no more geology, no more history, and then, you know, a, an art major a, as well. And and some people are screaming bloody murder. Oh, this is the end of the humanities. And Stephen's point is saying, look, we're running a huge structural deficit. And the problem here is nobody's are, nobody is taking the courses. They've got 76 people who are enrolled as history as is their major. That is out of 7,725 students. And they're just saying look, there's just not enough people there to support, you know, offering these majors anymore. So they say when the kids who are currently enrolled in them are, are done, that's going to be it. I, I think this is what they have to do. Roger in Wapan. Roger, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I, I really have to question how anybody can criticize a taxpayer-funded institution for using good sense when it comes to their expenditures. I mean, we're talking about supply and demand. The demand isn't there. If, and if we keep putting out the supply, it's just a waste of taxpayer dollars. So I, for one, as a taxpayer, I'm glad to see, and not terribly surprised to see, that these officials are using good sense. As far as individuals not being able to get these degrees, we are a long, long way. And I, well, no, I'm not wrong. They can get the degree. They're just going to have to go somewhere else. Right. Yeah. And, and, the, and the only other thing I wanted to add, and then I'll, I'll let you go so you can discuss this on, on the air there. Mm-hmm. But the only other thing I wanted to add is I would have to believe that the reason why there's dwindling demand for those courses is because more and more people are wising up to the fact that you get into debt for all those student loans, how are you going to pay it off? And what they're concluding is in certain of these areas, French, history, and whatever, they're not marketable. So I'll listen to your response off the air. No, no, thanks. Well, I mean, I think that that's clearly what this is. It's not like, again, I'm not poo-pooing the value of a history degree. 
But if at a particular university there's not enough kids that are going there to participate in the history program, well, then my, my response is then, then that school shouldn't be offering it. And, 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 yeah, that just means that you can't get it at Stevens Point. So if you want a history degree, you have to go to, I, I don't know, you have to go to, you know, lacrosse. Or you have to go to, you know, any Oshkosh, or you have to go to wherever, Eau Claire. You have to go look for that somewhere else where they offer it. But that's not, that, that's not necessarily a unique thing. There's all sorts of schools. As a matter of fact, I was talking to somebody about who was looking for a, a sports marketing program and not, not that many schools actually offer sports marketing. They, they just don't it, because there's not enough demand to make it worth spending the money to do it. So, you know, you put this all together, and it's just, again, it's a supply and demand type of thing. Now, what Stevens Point says that they want to do is they say, look, we're we're trying to, you know, focus. We want to transform the school into a, a regional university that infuses liberal arts into career-minded majors. And so what they're talking about is trying to restructure around our strengths. And I think what I, I assume that that means is, if the majority of students are trying to think about what their career is going to be or where they're going with it, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's great to have a liberal arts background. At least, I mean, I, I was talking in the last seg- section about how historically ignorant it seems that a bunch of these kids at Baramu High School are not understanding the significance of making the Nazi salute and taking the picture of them. Well, I mean, I, I think, yes, a, a good fundamental knowledge of history is important. I think a little bit of geology would be fine. I, I have nothing to say about these various, you know, majors. But the truth of the matter is, it's just kids aren't taking them. And if kids aren't taking them, that says, you know, all you, you need. You can't, you can't force it. Period. Twelve fifty-five. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One hundred eight. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Eric, you follow the NBA. At sure. All. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that Carmela Anthony story is really sort of interesting for people who haven't fo- followed it. Carmela Anthony's been playing in the NBA since the 2003 season. He was 19 years old. Mm-hmm. He played for Denver for like seven or eight seasons, yep, yep. and then left Denver to go to the New York Knicks. And he was supposed to be the New York Knicks savior. He was gonna he was gonna turn that around. And New York Knicks have been awful and. Uh, for for years and years, and I, I don't know that anybody could have fixed them, but but Anthony got a lot of the blame, and so Anthony left the, the New York Knicks. Um, then he went to Oklahoma City, where he played last year, and kind of flamed out there. And then he ended up in Houston mm-hmm. this year, and played well. What what are we like? Fifteen games into the NBA it's season, it's early. It's young, <clears throat> right? And. And it wasn't working out in Houston, so now they're going to send him over. He's signed a deal with Philadelphia, I guess, is the thing. So, yeah. I see. And Philly's a team this year. I don't know why do you want to bring him in if it seems like he wears out his welcome everywhere he's at. Well, maybe. I mean, he's he's thirty four, thirty five, thirty four years old, I think. So maybe they figure you you bring him in and he, he'll, he'll come off the bench and maybe he can give you five minutes or something. The the question is is he's always wanted to, he's always been used to being the star and mm-hmm. having everything mm-hmm. revolve around him. And right. um, at this age, can you bring, cause that's kind of what happened. I think in Houston, from what I could tell, he wasn't getting the playing time and he was sort of a, 
unhappy with that, and so they just decided, all right, this isn't working out. Let's right, move on. Right, right. So you got to be committed. But it, it does. I mean, it's an interesting story because the guy's just an amazing player. It has been an amazing player for a long time. But it, you kind of get the you get the idea. It's sort of the end of his career, and he hasn't quite found that niche yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's no Vince Carter. He's he can't no, play forever. He's no Vince Carter. Absolutely. All right. When Bayshore Town Center. The, the newest incarnation before now is going to be if the city of Glendale decides to come up with seventy five million dollars there'll be another one but when when they opened up the the latest incarnation of Bayshore Town Center like two thousand seven there was there was a a chain steakhouse there called Cameron's and it was a big big facility I remember eating there opening weekend and I general generally speaking. I'm not a big fan of chain restaurants. I, I just, especially like the high end places. I just, I'd rather find local places. But, but I remember eating there, and it was amazing. The service was outstanding. The food w- was great, and I, I was talking to some of the people that this was opening weekend. And what they told me they had done is that they had brought in some of their very, very best employees from all over the Midwest who were actually working the first month or so and then ultimately what was going to end up happening is they were going to all go back to where they came from and but they were in the process of training training all the new people to to show like how Cameron's does stuff well i that that meal service everything we had i still remember it it was absolutely spectacular and i will tell you i went back a few times after that and it never measured up because they sent all the experienced people back, and they, this, the, the people they are hired w- weren't weren't able to you know maintain the same level of quality. And ultimately, a- after a year, this place closed. I mean, it, it only lasted a, a year, and I think there was a variety of factors. But I, it was interesting because the, the meal, that first meal I had, they were never ever able to duplicate it. And part I think was because again they brought in the very very best employees and the best chefs, and, and they were just trying to have the best experience possible. But then I, I just don't think they could get people up to speed and train them. And I think they always had this problem. Now I bring this up because Foxconn is back in the news. Now we talked about this on Friday show. I think a very very real question that exists moving forward is where do we go with Foxconn? Now, hear me out on this. If you will recall, during the controversy when you know Foxconn was in line to get all the various incentives from the state, almost no Democrats in the state legislature voted for it. I mean, I think, what, two in the Assembly, maybe one in the state Senate? But, I mean, this was, this was passed along the most partisan of lines. And now... While the Republicans still control the Assembly and the Senate, you have Governor Tony Evers. And it's kind of an open question as to where is Tony Evers on the whole Foxconn thing, knowing that the vast majority of his party opposed this. Now, you might say, well, Jeff, the the deals are all signed. They've got these contracts. This is all in place. What could Evers do? Well, the answer is he could do a lot because my guess is – there's going to be litigation involving some of the air pollution uh, permits that Foxconn has gotten. There might be litigation involving some of the water use permits. I mean, there's still these environmental issues that have been hanging fire. And if you have a governor that decides that you know he's going to side 
with the environmentalists or the people who are bringing the lawsuits. You're going to have a Democrat attorney general who's going to have a different approach to things. You're going to have a Democrat-controlled DNR. And it is entirely possible that you could have, and I'm not predicting this is going to happen, but that you could have all sorts of hostility coming out of the governor's mansion and out of these agencies towards Foxconn, which, if not killing the project, because, yeah, everything's been signed off on, but if not killing the project, could significantly delay the project or scale it back or whatever. And so this is the reality that's out there. Now, into this, you you now have something new which has come up. Um, There was a report in the Wall Street Journal last week saying that Foxconn is considering bringing in people from China to help staff its Wisconsin plant. And and Foxconn immediately denied the report, and now this this set this whole other round of discussion. Well, is Foxconn trying to pull a fast one? They said that there's going to be these jobs. Well, is it going to be jobs from people in China that are now coming over to work there? Well, the, the latest development is, and this is according to the Journal Sentinel, you have a number of industry consultants who have said the reality is that when, in order to get Foxconn started, you are going to need engineers and technical experts from Asia um, because, essentially, to, to get an operation like this off the ground, just like to get that restaurant, you know, 10 or 11 years ago at Bayshore Town Center off the ground, they had to bring in people who were experienced with running that restaurant. They brought them in. They're saying, hey, this is what's going to happen with Foxconn. They're going to require experienced, you know, and trained engineers who are familiar with the type of stuff that Foxconn does. And the bottom line is that that's, that's where they're going to come from. They're going to come from China because right now, in Wisconsin, we don't have enough people who are trained or have the skills or the knowledge or the intimate relationships with what it is that Foxconn does to pull this off. So while Foxconn isn't saying this, these analysts are saying, yeah, it's it's quite likely that you're going to see, at least initially, people from Asia, probably people from China, that are going to be coming in to handle a lot of these more complex tasks. Right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If that turns out to be the case, if it turns out to be the case that especially at the jump, you have people that are coming in from Asia, particularly China, to do a lot of these engineering type of jobs, is is that going to be a controversy? Is this a betrayal of what Foxconn promised? Or is this just reality? Does it bother you? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 117. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 119. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, there was a report in the Wall Street Journal last week saying, hey, Foxconn may be bringing in people from Asia to help staff the new plant. And there's a report in the Journal Sentinel where they're talking to industry analysts and saying, well, they're probably going to have to do that because... If they don't bring in, I mean, right now, what they're doing is something completely new. There, there's, we don't do this in the United States. And so if you want to get the thing set up, you're going to have to bring in engineers, you know, people from China and Asia, at least in, in the beginning, to help get it up and running. Um, you, you need this help. Well, okay, if they do this, is this a betrayal of their promises? Should we look down our nose at Foxconn? Should we say, okay, here they're trying to pull a fast one. This isn't just jobs in Wisconsin or Illinois or whatever. They're even considering bringing in people from China. 
My point would be at the beginning, if you don't have people from Wisconsin or from the United States who have experience and the ability to do this, you don't have any choice but to bring in people from overseas who know what they're doing. And then, you know, gradually, I don't know, gradually you integrate people from the United States. Let's start with Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're first. Good afternoon. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you're going to build and promise all these jobs, then, you know, why you why do you need to bring in people from overseas? Why not just build a factory overseas like everybody else did? Well, I mean, because ultimately, well, first of all, this isn't all the jobs, but for some of the skilled jobs, if you don't have anybody. We're going to have to bring in a few guys. Right. We could understand that. Well, I think that's I mean, thanks. I think that's what they're talking about. This this isn't going to be 20 and 30 and 40 percent of the workforce. I mean, the vast majority of the workforce is going to end up being from Wisconsin first and then the United States. But there will be people from overseas who, who come in and get the thing started. And I think that's that's only reasonable because I, I think and that's the way most businesses operate. You bring in the experienced people to, you know, get the store open and then you transition other folks in. I, I don't think that that's unusual in retail. If you look at retail stores that open up, we, you know, when they first open up, um, you know, the the Groove Fudgy Wudgy Chocolate Company opens up its plant, open up its restaurant in Madison. Chances are they're going to have people from Groove's Milwaukee operation that are there maybe for a week, maybe for a month, maybe for three months or whatever to get the thing off the ground. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Lewis on the south side. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, I think uh, this is no big deal. Standard practice. How many U.S. companies over the decades have sent uh, their personnel over to countries when they started new companies? Um, It's something that should be expected, uh, and it shouldn't change anything unless, you know, they continue to bring in workers over a period of time, you know? Well, right, and and Foxconn says, hey, look, we're, we're committed to you know when we're we're committed to staffing this operation with you know people from the United States we're looking at Wisconsin but we're going to be looking out through the region but you're right in the beginning you need people who know what they're doing you need people who are familiar with their operation and since there's no operation like this in the United States yet it seems to me it means you got to bring in people from overseas to help get the thing running yeah, no, thanks for calling. And whether that, and if that means, I, I mean, I don't know how long that is. Does that mean that the top level people and the managers are here for a year or two years or three years or, or whatever? I, I don't know. My guess is at the end of the day that the vast majority of people working at Foxconn from the beginning, the vast majority are going to be people from Wisconsin, from the Midwest, and then from the United States. Does that mean that there's going to be a percentage? Five percent, ten percent? I don't know. Perhaps people, you know, in the training sessions or whatever, who are are from China. Well, I I, I would be shocked otherwise, because you need people who know what they're doing. That's one of the great things about Foxconn, I think, and why it has the potential to be transformative, and why I hope like heck that you don't have the Evers administration coming in and deciding that they're going to try to use the regulatory power they have to throw a cold blanket on this, because I think. Again, whether it's a Republican operation or a Democrat operation, I don't care about that. I think that five or ten years down the road, this is going to be a game changer for the Wisconsin economy. I could be wrong. Maybe some of those people who were naysayers, you know, during the whole conversation, maybe they'll be proved to be right. But I I don't think so, and I certainly hope not. But at the beginning, I'm not surprised that Foxconn, if they bring in 
again, skilled people who've worked on these types of facilities before, that would only make sense to me. Let's talk to Howie in Elkhorn. Howie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Yeah, I worked uh, 30 years for a company called uh, Kikaman Foods. And obviously they're located in Japan. Okay. And when they started the company, and anytime they put in a new round bed, anytime they put in an addition, the engineer, not the workforce, but the engineer always comes from Japan. And they treated us tremendously. And there was just a small portion of the people, department heads were from Japan. Right. And that was it. And it never affected anything. It was the best paying job in Wallace County for non-skilled labor. Right. And, and, and it only makes sense because... The, the, the people in Japan had that experience that they needed, so they brought them in. But it, it didn't mean that there weren't lots of jobs for people in Walworth County. That's absolutely right. There was 170 employees there, and maybe maybe 15 to 20 were Japanese. Pop. Yeah. Yeah. No. Thanks. Again. I, I think that's what they're looking at. I mean, here's an interesting text. Foxconn has already put 10 million dollars up to UW Madison for developing engineers to take these positions. No one in the area is capable of implementing these practices to produce these products here yet. Foxconn has a plan. They 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 have to plan a successful business when the facility is ready to produce. Yeah. See, and that's that that's exactly the the idea. You. You know, to get the thing off and running, especially when you need these type of skilled positions, well, you, you might have to bring in people from the home office with the idea being, all right, at some point in time, three years, I don't know, it's six months or three years or five years or whatever, ultimately you're going to be drawing from the local labor pool. Let's talk to um, John in Brookfield. John, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, John. Um, yeah, it was about the same thing is when, when you have – uh, people coming from wherever they come from to fill these positions, they, they still have to live here. They're still going to be paying for apartments, homes, right. um, what have you, whether they come from the U.S. or from China. You know, they're, they're right. still going to be here. You know, our labor force is big, but after Amazon took a, quite a few of them, you know, I don't know how many more skilled laborers you're going to laborers are going to have that are readily available. You know, well, and especially like this type especially this type of though. school. I mean especially this type of skill. I mean it's not oh, totally. I mean you you need to okay, they do something that we don't do in the United States now. We're going to start doing it after they set up. No, thanks. I mean, I guess I, I just I see this whole thing as much ado about nothing. And there, there's all these different concerns. And it's Foxconn lying, et cetera, et cetera. And will this be a basis to give us a chance to renege? No, I mean, to me, this is just it, it is a it is a business thing. And I bring this topic up because I will tell you, I am concerned that you might, with the change of administrations, have, again, a change of attitude with regard to Foxconn. My belief has always been that if Jim Doyle had put together the Foxconn deal, every single Democrat who voted against it would have voted for it. Well, now that Tony Evers is coming in, I'm hoping the Democrats um, recognize the benefit this can have. And instead of trying to figure out ways to delay or kill Foxconn, again, through the regulatory process, I'm hoping everybody gets on board and recognizes that this is going to be good for the state of Wisconsin, which is good for people, regardless of whether you're a Republican or whether you're a Democrat. It's 128, Jeff Wagner. It's 135, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Bucks are back home after a tough West Coast road trip against three potential playoff teams. They went 2-2. Two and two. That is a great outcome, including... 
big win in Denver. They almost never win in Denver. They won in Denver last night, and of course the big win last Thursday night against Golden State. The Bucks look to get back to their winning ways as they welcome the Memphis Grizzlies to town. Ted Davis is on the call, and our coverage starts at seven o'clock. Is that tonight? Is, is that is the, the Bucks playing tonight? No, that or is that no? Okay, so our promo is wrong. All right, okay, got it. All right, but the Bucks are back in town, so that's good. That's a good thing. All right. Uh, Mississippi, there there are, uh, and after the elections last Tuesday, you've still got a couple elections that are undecided. They've still got 10% of the ballots to cast count in Arizona, and you've got the complete cluster bumble that is going on in, in Florida, which, well, it's Florida. It's a mess. There's one other Senate race which is yet to be decided, and that is in Mississippi. It, Mississippi is a very, very Republican state. The way it works in Mississippi is for the general election, you have multiple candidates who are on the ballot, not just one Republican, not just one Democrat, but multiple candidates. And what happens is if one of the candidates fails to get 50% of the vote plus one vote, then you go into a runoff with the top two candidates. Following me? So what happened on Tuesday is you had Two Republican candidates, one Democrat and then a handful of kind of like the third party candidates that were running. The top vote getter was the incumbent Senator Cindy Hyde Smith. She had been appointed by President Trump. She got 41.5 percent of the vote, 367,000 votes. The number two, but that was only 41 percent of the vote. The number two vote getter was a guy named Mike Espy. Um, he was the he was the Democrat who was running. He was the secretary of the Department of Agriculture during Bill Clinton's first term. He'd been in Congress as well. He got three hundred and fifty eight thousand votes. And you might say to me, well, Jeff, what are you talking about? You said Mississippi was a Republican state here. He, he came within nine, nine percent, nine thousand votes. They're very close. Well, the, the African-American, the, the, he was an African-American candidate. The asterisk is that the third-place candidate was also a Republican. His name was Chris McDaniel, and he got 145,000 votes. So if you put the two Republican vote totals together, you've got about half a million. So the two Republicans, they kind of split the vote, and they ended up getting 150,000 votes more than Mr. Espy got. So almost every observer thinks that when there's the runoff um, at the end of the month, that the Republican candidate is going to win. Just if you look at the total vote, if you look at the overall vote totals that are there, but she wasn't able to get 50% of the vote because the other Republican that was on the ballot was strong enough that he siphoned, he siphoned a bunch of votes from her. All right. So you've got now this two person runoff. You've got uh, again, the current Senator Cindy Hyde Smith, and she's running against Mike Espy. All right. There is a controversy that started over the weekend. Apparently, what happened is sometime last week, Hyde Smith, the Republican senator, she is at a small campaign event in Tupelo, Mississippi. Gru, have you ever been to Tupelo, Mississippi? I, you say no, and you laugh. I have been to Tupelo, Mississippi. I, I have. I actually, I, I like Tupelo, Mississippi. It's a, a outstanding food, home of some really great musicians and stuff. I, I have been, I remember a couple bars that I was in in Tupelo, Mississippi, listening to some just absolutely outstanding music. I, I So I've been to Tupelo, Mississippi. In any event, the Hyde Smith, 
All right. She is at a small campaign event with um, this cattle rancher. His name is Colin Hutchinson. And I don't know all the circumstances behind this, but I get the idea that Hutchinson is probably a big donor. And it, it's a small event that's out there. And I, I don't precisely know where in Tupelo this is. But there's somebody from a, a media source that's that's videotaping this. And she comes out with, with Hutchinson. And Hutchinson talks to the group about you know how he's known her and what, what a wonderful person she is, et cetera, et cetera. And then she gets up to speak. And she's apparently talking about um, how how much she likes this guy, this cattle rancher that that invited her. And she says, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. All right. If he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. In, in other words, I, I think what she now I've, I've never heard this expression. And I've never used the expression. But I, I think what she's trying to say is, I'll go anywhere this guy wants me to go. I mean, it, that, that's what I think she's, anywhere he asks, he asks me to come out and be with him, I'm going to come out. That's what I think she's trying to say. But she says, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. All right. I, I don't know if that is a Mississippi expression. Like I say, I've never heard it. I've never used it. But if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. The Democrat candidate, who, as I mentioned, is African-American, he immediately pounces on this and calls the remark as reprehensible, reprehensible. And the argument is, gee, with the with the history that Mississippi has with with lynching, it is reprehensible. Here's specifically what the SB campaign says. Cindy Hyde Smith's comments are reprehensible. Hmm. They have no place in our political discourse in Mississippi or in our country. We need leaders, not dividers. And her words show that she lacks the understanding and judgment to represent the people of our state. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, as I say repeatedly on this program, I understand there's real racism in this country and that, you know, when you see it, it needs to be called out and it needs to be condemned. At the same time, I think too often there are people who, for their own purposes or whatever, decide that they are going to play the race card or they're going to invoke this for you know their own personal gain when it's really not racism. Now, she says, if you invited me to a public hanging, I'd, I'd be there in the front row. All right. And this is labeled by her opponent as being reprehensible. Clearly, there's some people who are trying to link this to Mississippi's history of, of lynching. I think it's a peculiar reference. Is it racist? Is it really reprehensible? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Because now, again, what's happened is you have the candidate, this case the Democrat, who is tra- is who everybody thinks he's going to lose because, again, you count up the Republican votes and the Republicans got 150,000 more. But now we, we have this issue that's been injected into this. Is this really a reprehensible comment? Is it racist or is it just kind of a peculiar thing to say, at least maybe by Wisconsin standards? 414-799-1620. Crew is lining up the calls. We're back to discuss in just a moment. It's 143. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 146. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right. 
she says she's talking. This is the Republican. She's going to probably continue to be a senator from Mississippi. The runoff is in two weeks. She's with a supporter cattleman in Tupelo, Mississippi, and the Republican Senate candidate. She's talking, I think, in the context of how she loves him, how she'd go anywhere, you know, that that he asked her to come. And she says uh, something to the effect of, I'd go to a, a public hanging. You know, if he invited me to a public hanging, I'd be in the front row. Right now, is, is this? I, I find this to be an odd statement. Is it racist? Is it reprehensible? Or is it just kind of an odd thing to say? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's start with Russ in Wauwatosa. Hi, Russ. Uh, this is Ralph. Ralph in Wauwatosa. Hi, Ralph. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Good. I just, first, I just want to say I'm a, a fellow Nicolet graduate, so I just want to wish oh. you well on that. Go Knights. <laughs> Go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think the comment was really um, reprehensible or or uh, racist. I just think it was absolutely stupid. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out if, if this is like a common expression in Mississippi, and I don't think so. It, it's just a bizarre analogy to, to use. Hey, I'm. I mean, he's my old friend. I would go anywhere if he invited me to this. I'd be in the front row. Why you chose a public hang? Why why you chose to use the phrase public hanging is beyond me. It's just odd. Exactly, Jeff. I I don't understand why she chose she chose that expression. I mean, there's thousands of expressions and ways you can express yourself. Why choose something that could possibly have been misread as right. something racist right. or bad? Right. Exactly. No. Thanks. I mean. Right. I mean. It, yeah. It, it is a very odd choice of words. Again, unless this is unless this is some colloquialism, and I don't really think it is. I mean. And again, the the whole universe of 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 analogies that you could give. I really like this guy. We've been friends for a long time. I'd go anywhere. You know, if he invited me to, I don't know. You know, uh, whatever. I I'd be sitting in the front row. You could pick out anything. Now, at the same time. Reprehensible is a pretty big word to throw around. In all, in all honesty, I mean, do I think it's odd? But again, see, part of it is, and while I think this is an odd thing to say, one of the things that is frustrating to me is that you have, you you have people who try to seize on things and try to say, okay, we're we're going to view this, we're we're going to we're going to view this as racism when it and it's not racism. It's just kind of an odd thing to say, or we're going to be offended by this. Well, I mean, I wonder how many of the people are really offended by it or whether they think they, they should be offended by it. I think it's an odd thing to say. Beyond that, I don't know what the significance is. 414-799-1620, Jeff in Brookfield. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. What do you think about all this, sir? I, I just think that it's a very, very poor choice of words. Yeah. It's certainly, I don't, I, don't, it's just, I don't think it's reprehensible in any way. Um, in my opinion, it's just a, uh, it's odd <laughs> it is playing the race car. Um, I, I hate to say it, Jeff, but that's what it is. It's election hysteria. Right. I mean, it, well, it is. I mean, th- thanks. For, and it's an effort to try to exploit. Thanks. So it's an effort to try to exploit, you know, th- this particular issue. Now, I mean, look, I, I don't know anything about this particular Senate candidate, I don't know when, and she's actually a senator now. I, I don't know if, if there's some sort of history that you can point to, but with regard to, uh, again, and I, I'm, believe me, I, I'm mindful 
of the whole history of the civil rights movement in the South and the way um, African-Americans were treated over the years. And I'm aware of the whole kind con- of what, you know, went on with the, the lynchings and the things like that. I'm just saying that I, I don't see this because, look, here, here's the truth. You know, back I mean, when I when I think of public hangings, I think of the old Western movies and stuff. And I, I, I don't think that it's exclusively, you know, people of of one race that ended up getting, you know, hung in the old West. That's that's kind of what I think of. But I guess if people want to see these things, all right, you get to see it. But reprehensible, really? 414-799-1620. Scott in Greendale. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff, my friend. Okay, so I'm going to take probably an unpopular viewpoint on this. And I am, I just want to say, totally conservative. You know this. But I, my man, being down in Greenville and spending some time down there when my career first started, this is the South, and they still have a lot of issues. And Mm -hmm. I think it's weird for us, but down in that region, man, Public hangings, uh, it does go back to the time of black and white racial issues. It so, really, so you really think this is a dog whistle thing, essentially? Is she sending so, out a message? I don't know her, and I don't want to go so far as to say she's a racist, obviously. But I will just tell you, I think we think it's so odd that she used it because it is so out of bounds. At least, I would have to tell you, at least, I would not vote for her just based on that. You gotta know what your surroundings are. You gotta know you gotta have some common sense. You gotta know who you're running against. You gotta know where you live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Huh. Interesting. I mean I, I I mean would I would I not vote for her if if and again I, I haven't I have not followed the Mississippi Senate runoff race. So I, I I don't know where she stands on all the different issues vis-a-vis Mike Espy. My guess is she's a lot more conservative than Mike Espy would be. That's just my guess, but I think it's probably a pretty safe one. Would I not vote for a candidate because she used this, what I think is an odd phrase, but but again, I, this doesn't strike me as being overtly racist, and it doesn't strike me as being reprehensible. It just strikes me as being odd. Would I not vote for her? If I agree with her on 90% of the issues and I agree with the other guy on 30% of the issues, would this be something that stopped me from voting for? I, I just, I, I don't think so. Now, obviously, this is going to get a lot of attention. The runoff, I think, is at the end of the month. I want to say it's November 26th or November 27th or something like that. And this is is an issue. And clearly, the SB forces are, are trying to use this as an issue to try to help make up what appears to be a gap. Sorry, I, I just don't see this as racist. I don't see it as reprehensible. But especially, especially if you're a conservative running, I think you always need to be mindful of what you say. My guess is this was just some sort of odd reference off the top of her head, but now it's kind of blown up, and I guess the voters of Mississippi get to decide how big a deal it is. 153, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 207, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. There was a time back in the day when Saturday Night Live was genuinely funny. Now, they, they did... They did political humor from time to time, but it wasn't all political humor. It was like a, a broad-based sort of thing, and, and sometimes it was satire, and sometimes it was parody, and sometimes it was just bizarre, but it was it was funny. And I think one of the things that's happened over the last several years is Saturday Night Live, now it's pure political humor, and it's pure left-wing political humor, and that's, that's what they do, and, and that's okay. They've carved out 
a certain niche. Now, there's a huge chunk of the public that doesn't watch them, but that's okay. They're, it's going to be left-wing political humor, and that's what they that's what they strive to do, and I guess they, they do it okay. Now, even having said that, though, there's times you cross the line, and we talked about this last week. They've got uh, – there, there's a comedian named Pete Davidson – who chances are you've never heard of him before. It's, it's just kind of the, the reality. He does this kind of weekend update thing. And, and last week, he was making fun of the way political candidates, mostly Republicans, look. And they focused on a picture of a guy named Dan Crenshaw, who was a Republican running for Congress out of Texas, who has an eye patch. And they made fun of him. Look, look at this eye patch. He looks like he should be not running for Congress, but he looks like he should be a hitman in a porno movie. And then Davidson goes on to say, I, I know he lost his eye in the war or something, but whatever. And the crowd roars. And you know, we talked about this last week that, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that the Dan Crenshaw is a former Navy SEAL who lost his eye when an IED exploded in Afghanistan when he was on his third tour of combat. All right. And the guy is, you know, a, a war hero, you know, and, and you're, you're making fun of the fact that he, he lost his eye. And I mean, the example I gave last week is that you have a Republic, a, a Democrat senator from, from Illinois named Tammy Duckworth, who, you know, is a double amputee. He, she lost both her legs um, while, while serving in Iraq, I, I believe. And I mean, and, and, you know, she's gone on to accomplish just great things. And I don't care about the politics. You know, she made an incredible sacrifice to serve our country. You wouldn't mock the fact that she lost her legs. You know, you, would, you wouldn't mock it in any circumstance, especially not a circumstance where she lost it in, in combat. But but of course, this guy, it's, it's fair game. And so they, they make fun of him. And Equally as disappointing as the fact that, you know, you have the comedian, quote unquote, who, who makes the joke, you have the audience who all laughs at it. I mean, what what does that say about the people in the audience? Well, anyhow, Saturday Night Live got a ton of, of blowback for this. And during the week, they, they had nothing to say about it, although one of the guy's castmates said, well, he kind of feels terrible about this, especially since his father lost his life in the attack on 9-11. And it, it's just I think everybody knows that they went too far. So they, they addressed it on, on Saturday night. And at, at last Saturday night at the segment, and you can find this on, on the Internet. They have it there. The They came out, and this Pete Davidson, the same guy who made the joke that was in very, very bad taste, you know, he, he came out and he says, look, he said, I, I want to start off by saying, in what I'm sure was a huge shock for people who know me, I made a poor choice last week. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. It was a poor choice of words. The man, and he's referring again to uh, Dan Crenshaw, is a war hero. He deserves all the respect in the world. And if anything good came of this, maybe it was that for one day, the left and the right finally finally came together to agree on something. Then he said that I'm, and he uses an expletive that you can apparently say on the radio, or you can say on Saturday Night Live, but I don't feel comfortable saying it on the radio. But he said, okay, everybody can agree that I'm a blank. At which point in time, uh, Dan Crenshaw, who who won his race, he's congressman-elect, he comes on the set and he says, you think? And then they say, <clears throat> thank you for coming. And he said, well, thanks for making a Republican look good. And they apologize. And then what happens is, uh, appropriately, they they give Crenshaw, then they, they put up this Pete Davidson's picture, and Crenshaw makes fun of that for a couple things. But then, you know, he has a, a, a serious thing. And this is, again, um, Lieutenant Commander Crenshaw. He, he looks at the camera. And he gets to say the following. I think it's completely appropriate, given that it's Veterans Day today. 
He says, there's a lot of lessons to learn here. Not that just that the left and right can still agree on some things, but also this. Americans can forgive one another. We remember what brings us together as a country and still see the good in each other. This is Veterans Day weekend, which means that it's a good time for every American to connect with a veteran. Maybe say thanks for your service, but I would actually encourage you to say something else. Tell a veteran, never forget. When you say never forget to a veteran, you are implying that as an American, you are in it with them not separated by some imaginary barrier between civilians and veterans, but connected together as a grateful fellow American who will never forget the sacrifices made by veterans past and present, and never forget that those we lost on 9-11, heroes like Pete's father. So I'll say, just say, Pete, never forget. And then they, they shake hands. I, as somebody who was very, very critical of Saturday Night Live and, and this sketch last week and the people who laughed at it. I, I mean, you know, credit where credit is due. I think this was an incredibly appropriate way to acknowledge that, you know, they had gone too far. And um, I think the apology seemed to be heartfelt. We'll, we'll see where it goes from here. But I also think it was very, very good that Saturday Night Live gave Congressman-elect Crenshaw the opportunity to, to make that statement, which is, Maybe something that some of the people who, for example, were in the audience a week ago who were laughing at this reference, maybe they needed to hear it. But I credit where credit is due. Saturday Night Live shouldn't have done what they did two weeks ago, but I think they did an appropriate thing in trying to make it right last Saturday, and they deserve credit for that. All right, when we come back, run, Hillary, run. Stick around. It's 214. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Moving forward, I think in Wisconsin, it's going to be very interesting to see what the future of the Republican Party is. And by that, I mean for really the last, gosh, 20-plus years. You know, you've had the future and the whole Wisconsin revolution when it comes to conservatism. I mean, it's been led by, I think, Paul Ryan, uh, Scott Walker and a handful of other people. Well, all right, Scott Walker lost his re-election effort last Tuesday. Uh, Paul Ryan stepped down you know, as Speaker of the House. So those guys who I think have been very, very transformative on the national level and on the state level, they're gone. And it will be interesting to me to see, you know, what is the future of the Republican Party in the state of Wisconsin? Where, Where are the leaders going to come from? Is it going to be more people from Scott Walker's generation? Um, or are you going to see like a new generation of people, you know, come forward, people who are in, you know, their 20s and, and 30s? And, and, and time is going to tell. And, abs- and candidly, I have some thoughts as to who might be the upcoming rising stars and things like that. But it's going to be interesting to see that emerge because there is a changing of the guard. And this happens in politics. It happens often. And then again, sometimes what's old is, is new again. There is a real interesting opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, and it's written by a guy, actually two guys, who were the pollsters and senior advisors to Bill and Hillary Clinton from 1995 to 2008. So, I mean, these are people who were close to Bill and Hillary for years. The conventional wisdom was that after Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump in 2016, you know, that that was it. Right now, she's 71 years old, so two years from now, she'd be 73, 74-ish when, when she would take office. But the thinking was, okay, Hillary Clinton, 
Um, she ran what would be now, I guess, 10 years ago. She ran against Barack Obama, couldn't beat Obama. She ran, got the nomination two years ago, ran against Donald Trump, lost to Donald Trump. And I think a lot of people were, were saying, okay, well, that's it for Hillary Clinton. You're going to see a new generation of, of, of candidate. And it has been true. If you watched, if you watched the, the last year or so, the run up to the midterms, you, you do have this new generation of, of candidates, or at least new faces that are out there. You have Elizabeth Warren. You have Cory Booker. You have the, the senator from New York. You have a number uh, of people who are, are, are firmly on the left who appear to be like falling all over themselves to try to position for themselves to run for, for president. So it was with interest I saw this story. It was posted today. Here's what it says. And again, these are, these are pollsters for the Clintons. Hillary will run again. And they go on to predict reinventing herself as a liberal firebrand. Mrs. Clinton will easily capture the 2020 nomination. So not only do they think she will run, but they believe that she will be nominated. Here's the first paragraph. Get ready for Hillary Clinton 4.0. More than 30 years in the making, this new version of Mrs. Clinton, when she runs for president in 2020, will come full circle. Back to the universal health care promoting progressive firebrand of 1994. True to her name, Mrs. Clinton will fight this out until the last dog dies. She won't let a little thing like two stunning defeats stand in the way of her claim to the White House. And then, you know, it goes on to talk about, you know, the different versions of Hillary Clinton and how originally, you know, she was going to reform health care. And then she kind of, you know, dialed, dialed it back and was trying to kind of tamp down some of the, the edges that people might have found to be kind of off-putting, et cetera, et cetera. But it goes on to say, hey, th- this is different. Mrs. Clinton has a 75% approval rating among Democrats, an unfinished mission to be the first female president, and a personal grievance against Mr. Trump, whose supporters pilloried her with chance of lock her up. This must be avenged. Expect Hillary 4.0 to come out swinging. She has decisively to win the Iowa caucus goers who never warmed up to her, but they will now see her as a strong partisan left-leaning and all-Democrat, one with the guts, the experience, and the steely-eyed determination to defeat Mr. Trump. She has had two years to get over what she did wrong and how to take him on again. And then it talks about how Richard Nixon came back from his loss to John Kennedy, won the presidency in 1968. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, the piece goes on to talk about how you've got this next generation of Democrats who've kind of been in the back, you know, been waiting for the last decade for the Clintons to kind of fade from the scene. And it says, okay, they're going to be fuming, but the idea is they predict that Hillary's going to run, and I don't know, that this next version may in fact win. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Hillary in 2020, do you think it's going to happen? Should it happen? Would it be a success? And I would be particularly interested from people, hearing from people who have no intention of voting for President Trump, but, you know, is Hillary the candidate? Is this her time? Finally, 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Hillary 2020, good idea. 222, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 224, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. 
There's one of our texts. I'm sure the right wing is ecstatic that their imaginary bogeyman may run again, but Hillary Clinton is not running. I would vote for her a hundred times over, but it's not going to happen. The Democratic candidate will be younger and charismatic. Think Beto Beto O'Rourke, who is the guy that lost to uh, Ted Cruz in Texas. All right. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. Now, I can't, candidly, I don't know about Beto O'Rourke, but I, I've thought that, I, I thought that 2020 would be a change, I believe it would be a changing of the guard, that you do have this next generation of Democrats, the people that are kind of been waiting in the wings for the last 10 years. I thought somebody like that would, would come forward. But this story I'm looking at, the Wall Street Journal says, forget what Hillary's saying, she is all in, and they think that she might be able to win the nomination. Katie in Burlington. Katie, you're on WTMJ. I would love it if she ran because I think it would be the nail in the coffin for the Democratic chances of taking over in 2020. I I can't imagine that there are not people, Democrats, that are like, her time is done. We talk about two years of her reflecting on what she did wrong. I think the problem is she's the one that's wrong. You can repackage it 10,000 times. You can dip a turd in glitter. It's still a turd. I mean, I just cannot believe that she would, at this point, she's running for herself. She's not running for the office, for serving the country. It would well, be well, but, but, for, but, well, well, but the, argue, the argument would be that she's wanted to be president for the longest time, that the voters have recognized that, it, that in 2016 they made a mistake and that she's experienced, she's ready to go. That would be the argument. This is not Susan Lucci in the Emmys. This is the United <laughs> States president. It's not like we owe her anything. It's not like, you know, you put in time and you automatically get it. It's not like, a you know, a, a prize. It's, yeah. It's an office. And I think at this point she's running for herself. It's well, just for her and her ego and her legacy. And I can't believe that Democrats really want that. Well, that they, I mean, see, that's that really is kind of the question. Now, here's a text. Why not? She had million more votes than Trump, which didn't count. But they tell everybody your vote counts. Okay, I don't even know where to go with that. We don't elect presidents by popular vote. We elect them by electoral votes. And this you gotta need, you gotta get over. Hillary lost. You just gotta, you gotta get over that. I just think it's gonna be interesting. Would would Democrats really embrace her again? Or would you want somebody, uh, again, younger? more vibrant, kind of the, the new wave, the, the, the future. I guess I, I've always thought one of the problems that it had is that the Clintons are, are the past. They might be, you know, Bill, they, they keep off the campaign trail. But Hillary, you know, might be respected, might be sort of a senior-type advisor. But would, would, would Democrats really nominate Hillary again? Lucy on the West Side. Lucy, you're on WTMJ. Hi. I told your um, screener I had just been reading the article right before you started talking right. about it. When I started reading it, I thought it was satire. <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I am a Democrat. Right. And I have voted for um, Hillary Clinton. But uh, are you and your audience old enough to remember Robert Taft? Uh, I, Taft was even before my time, Lucy. <laughs> okay. He was, he was a very, very famous and well-respected Republican. Right. He was Mr. Republican. He almost, almost got the nomination in 1948. He didn't, and that was the high point of his career, but he kept running for president right? with diminishing returns. Right. I'm not going to sit here and trash Hillary Clinton, but I think... It's time to move on. Her 
time has come and gone. Yeah. Yeah. No. Right. It's not a question of trashing her. I mean, it, but but I I agree. I mean, I was kind of stunned by this as well because you, okay, she this is. I mean, she ran against Barack Obama and, and couldn't you know, couldn't get the nomination, and then had the nomination in her own right. If I was a, a Democrat, I'm looking forward to that next generation. I'm I'm saying, okay, I want to find I want to find a liberal firebrand. I want to find somebody that can beat Donald Trump, but that's not uh-huh. necessarily somebody who's going to be you know in, in her mid seventies when she runs. Not to knock people in their mid seventies, but I want that next generation. And one more thing, go white. Um, the article mentions that she has such a high approval rating right now. Right. But the reason she has such a high approval rating right now is because she's not running. Right. And people feel that she didn't get a fair shake or that she was treated poorly. And right. I really, I detest those people who scream lock her up. If I could throw something at them, I would. Right. But that rating will evaporate if she's in the ring again. Yeah, well, exactly. And you compare her to a number of the other candidates that are out there as well. No, th- thanks for right. It's, you're, you're exactly right, Lucy. It's easy to talk about stuff in, in the abstract. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I think for Republicans, candidly, one of the best things to have happen would be for Hillary Clinton to run again, as opposed to, I don't know, somebody who, again, is sort of a new, fresher face that might appeal to I don't know, these next generations of voters that came out and voted in the midterm and you want to make sure that they're going to vote again. I, again, I, I, I don't know. Be interesting to see what happens. But if if there really is this kind of whispering campaign, let's get Hillary in. By the way, I'm going to make a prediction now. I don't think Joe Biden gets in. I just don't think it's hard. I, I think Joe Biden would be a very, very formidable, formidable candidate. He's in his mid-70s, too. And I think he's I think he's just kind of at a point where, OK, enough is enough. I predict he does not get into the race. I think whoever gets the nomination is going to be, again, a newcomer onto the national stage. Just saying. 239, Jeff Wagner, WPM. So I, I see the Journal Sentinel has just posted online a story about this Wauwatosa alderman that I told you about a little while ago. And like I said, this was broken by Mark Belling on Friday, credit where credit is due. And the, the story... Okay, and this is this woman. It's just, she was elected last April. She was behind the whole, let's turn Wauwatosa into a sanctuary city thing. And she, she volunteers to be a poll worker. That's fine. And she shows up wearing, wearing a t-shirt that's got a, a picture of Donald Trump's hair on it with a, with an obscenity in another language. You know, it, it's, it's again, think what, think what Robert De Niro said, you know, uh, at the Tony Awards. And it, it's a reference to that with regard to, the president's hair and, and the woman shows up as a poll worker wearing this kind of stuff i mean really apparently on her facebook page she says while volunteering as a poll worker i wore a shirt that included a profanity in another language the decision to wear the shirt was a lapse in judgment i would like to apologize to any voters or poll workers that were offended by the language okay it's again it's, it's not it's not just the language which is i guess one issue but it's also that she's wearing this anti-Trump T-shirt, including the language. I mean, that's – and it, do, do I think it's a violation of state law? I, I don't know. I mean, they tell poll workers – they're poll workers not to do this stuff. But it is indicative of what is going on in Wauwatosa. I mean, seriously, that you have an elected official who thinks that this is a good idea. And then, well, I'm sorry if my lang- if the language was inappropriate. Well, it's not just the language. It's all things put together. It's this anti-Trump T-shirt that you decide to wear to a polling place. Now, again, I don't understand you can hate the president all you want, but seriously, 
These are elected officials. You would expect you would expect a 14-year-old in high school to have a, a better sense of judgment in this and the impulse control of a fruit more than a fruit fly, which apparently isn't true of at least one elected official out in Wauwatosa. All right, let us switch gears. The um, for year for ever since I was was a kid, I I could always remember. I, I just I couldn't wait till I turned sixteen. So that I could, I could get a car, get my driver's license and get a car. I mean, one of my, my parents gift to me before my 16th birthday is I got to take driver's license, uh, for the, you know, I got, I didn't have to wait till the summer. My birthday's in May. I didn't have to wait till the summer to take driver's ed. They, my, my 16th birthday present was they let me take driving lessons at one of these private places. So that by the time on my 16th birthday, I got to go down to the DMV. I got to take the road test and I got my driver's license. Got it. Okay, on my sixteenth birthday. Okay, after that, so now you got the driver's license. So you know you're 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 free. You can drive. It's a whole different world. And then after that, my next goal was I want my own car, so I can remember you know saving and things like that. And I can still remember I can still remember my parents' cars that I drove when I was in high school. And then I can remember like the first car I had after I bought it. I I wanted that. I wanted that freedom. I I had that love affair with with the automobile that many of us share. Well, it's interesting because that love affair with cars may be ending. And I'm looking at a really interesting story that, that there's some new surveys that are out which are suggesting that people like my producer, Gru, who is between the age of 22 and 37. You're between 22 and 37, right? All right. Um, about half of adults in that age group, 22 to 37, say that a car is not worth the money that they have to spend on insurance and maintenance and parking and all that, and that they would rather be doing something other than driving. Um, then they interview all these people who say, hey, you know, we know how to drive, but we've ever we've never owned a car. We don't want one. They quote one guy saying, it's expensive. It's a headache in the city. I have to worry about parking. I have to worry about insurance, repairs, finding a trustworthy mechanic and gas. I don't really see the benefit except maybe once in a blue moon, you know, going, I don't know, to some place out in the suburbs. And then I could either rent a zip car or I could just take an Uber there. And then what it goes on to do, and it's, just not, it's not that young people or millennials aren't buying cars, but they're not necessarily buying them as much. Um, here's one of the surveys. Millennials might not be buying cars, might be buying cars, but they're sharing them more often. Or they may have cars they use on weekends only and therefore invest a lot less in it because they're going to use ride share during the week. The place the vehicle is in the mindset of younger consumers is shifting because they have more options and more opportunities. All right, let's tee this up. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, so, I mean, the reality is that it, nowadays it, you've everybody's got the, the Uber app or the Lyft app that, that's on their phones. Um, you have more mass transit options. But, he, but even with that, the, the idea back in the day, you know, the idea of the American dream was, hey, I, I want to get a car. And as soon as I as soon as I get enough money, I'm buying a car and I'm going to drive the car because the car gives me that level of freedom. This appears to say that maybe for people in their 20s and their 30s, what was the American dream for a guy like me when I was in my 20s or 30s? Gee, I, I want the car. 
that that is fading. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right. Are, is there a sea change going on now with regard to millennials, younger people, and cars? It is the idea that, hey, we can, we've got Uber, we've got Lyft, we've got other ways to get around. We're living more maybe in urban areas. Who needs the expense and the hassle? Is that the future? 414-799-1620. Gru, who is in this age bracket, is lining up the calls. We're back to discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 245. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you were my age or, or a bit younger, one of the rites of passage was getting your driver's license and then, then getting a car as soon as you can. There's new information out there that suggests while people are still buying cars, millennials, 22 to 37, are not as into cars perhaps as guys like me were, and that with a number of different options, a lot of people are saying it's just not worth it owning a car. The maintenance, the insurance, the gas, trying to figure out a place to park. And is this the future of cars? Let's start with Molly in Oconomowoc. Hi, Molly. Hey, how are you? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Is, is our love affair with cars ending? Well, sadly, I think for this generation, quite possibly, we've got two kids that are 23 and 21. The 21-year-old is in the heart of Minneapolis. She has a car, but she rarely uses it unless she needs to leave to go do something big like grocery shopping. Right. But she uses primarily the light rail system. She uses the bus system, and she utilizes Uber quite a bit. Right. Um, our other one lives in a smaller metro area in Michigan, and she needs a car um, in order to, to get around. They don't have that sort of infrastructure. Right. So it's more just it's more of a function of, of where they live and their access to alternative things. I will. I believe that's true. Also, you know, our youngest is going to be taking on the responsibility of car insurance shortly. Yeah. And I think she may give the car back to us. But she realizes the expense involved. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I have a very close friend whose brother has lived in New York City most of his adult life, you know, after he grew up here. And he, while he still has a driver's license, he, he's never, I don't think he's ever owned a car just because that's not, it's not practical in New York City to, to have, you know, to have a car. So if they've got to go somewhere on the weekends or something, they rent one or do that. But it just, the idea of owning a car, they just don't do it. They don't. And even in the times when our daughter had driven the car to school, she goes to the University of Minnesota, she got a ticket. $55 (laughs) for parking in the wrong spot. So she's now afraid to take the car really anywhere close um, to campus for fear of of being penalized. Interesting. Thanks. And 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 I guess that the question is now moving forward, you know, where, where does she go from here with the cars? Tom in Wales. Hi, Tom. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you, sir. How are you doing today? I am well, thank you. Okay, is our love affair with cars winding down? I think it is, but it's, I think it's beyond the Uber and all the other list services that are out there. I think it's the, the romanticism we used to have with as children wanting a vehicle, but mm-hmm. your parents would help you. They'd help you find a vehicle, fix it up a little bit, whether it be you know getting brakes worked on or different tires or rims, wanted to make it look better, but that was that bond you had with your parents. And I think that's going away because people don't have the time. I and mean, it's hard to work on vehicles on your own. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, nobody. Right. I mean, the, right. The idea of being your own mechanic nowadays, I, I, I'm i sure there's still some people who do it and still change their own oil and things like that. But I, I don't I don't think too many. And the fact that all these cars are gotten computerized now, that kind of changes it, too, because you've you got to plug in. Now, thank, I mean, it, it is a different kind of 
it is a different kind of dynamic. Now, look, I'm I'm not handy. I've never changed oil in a car in, in my life. I know how to. I I have changed tires, but you know, I, I I just I would never occur to me to do that. But I do know that there was this kind of car culture for a while. People, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to learn how to work on cars. I think that's kind of disappearing. Rich in Waukesha. Rich, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I Good. think. Um, <clears throat> Frankly, I think time and, and technology changes uh, just about everything. So when I when I was coming of adulthood in the late '80s, um, there was a lot of guys that that uh, you know really wanted to buy cars and and wanted to work on cars. But the way that cars are designed now, they're hard to they're hard to do that yourself. Yeah, it's all computer. You need you need the computer hookup that tells you what the problem is. Yeah. yeah. You have to take it into a technician, so it, it doesn't allow for that. But also, the the millennial generation, you know, we grew up in the in the eighties and the booming nineties, right? Right. So we didn't have as much, you know, as much uh, money concerns, frankly, mm-hmm. like those that the millennials. They grew up during the Great Recession, you right. know, the the um, the war times, etc. And they're frankly very frugal. But you're, uh, you know. Uh, and maybe they're realizing smartly, frankly, that that uh, you know that it, that a car is not a status symbol like it used to be decades ago. Yeah. It's now just viewed as a means of transportation, and frankly, it's always been a depreciating asset, right. except for the extreme right. know, premier price status symbol cars. Well, I think it is very expensive, oh, expensive oh, sure. and if they can get away with. With another mode of transportation, they'll do it. Yeah, no, and I, I think you're onto something, Rich. Now, thanks for coming. I mean, I, I do look. The, people are still buying cars, and, and the reality is, you, you still I, the, again, depending on where you live. Like I say, my my best friend's brother lives in New York City, and so if you live in New York City, between the subway and the buses and walking, you you really don't need a car. Plus, a car is prohibitively expensive if you try to find a place to to park it. But I mean, I I think particularly for younger people, if you're living in urban areas, and it's not just the idea of the mass transit, but it's also the idea that nowadays everybody's got the Lyft, everybody's got the Uber, so you you, you don't have to have that car if you want to go out on a Friday night or something, and even if you're not going to go in your immediate neighborhood, you want to go across town, well, fine, you can hit that app. Somebody's going to pick you up, and then for a, a relatively modest charge, you, you can get there. I, I think, there's, is there still going to be a demand for the automobile? Of course there is. It's not going to go away, but I do think use is going to change, and I would not be surprised to see it decrease over time. Just saying. It's 2.55. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.